We should be very careful about artificial intelligence. We are summoning the demon. Hey, welcome back to the Babylon Singularity Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Herter. Today, we're going to get into the second part of Revelation chapter 13. We're going to tackle the subject of the false prophet. Now, I know you've been told that this is the Antichrist sidekick. This is like uh, some sort of magician or pope or some sort of religious leader. I'm here to tell you that is wrong. I'm here to tell you that is a very low view of what John saw. It's important to remember here, you know, because it's it's easy to project on, like, if this was a human production, what would this look like, right? Um, if, if it was just us making this up um, and John didn't actually have a revelation from God and John just wanted to symbolize some of the stuff that was going on in his life at that time. Like, oh, there's a Rome, there's an empire and there's an emperor. He's a really bad guy. Man, I should make a, I should make up a, a vision about a dragon and a, and a, and a beast and, and, a, and a false prophet. <laughs> I mean, even this scenario is completely ridiculous. Like, like, so it doesn't make sense. There are other apocalyptic, you know, writings out there where, you know, potentially people did have either a false vision or just made it up or whatever. But this is different entirely. This book is in the Bible, right? This is in the canon. This is the word of God. This isn't something that John just decided to make up one day. This isn't, you know, uh, cute symbols that John wanted to warn people uh, about the Roman Empire by, right? He was he was imprisoned for his faith. He was imprisoned for his testimony, and God shows him the events that would lead up to the return of Jesus. So it's, you know, there's a lot of folks out there that would say, hey, the book of Revelation, that was for the first century. That's already happened. And, and I'll touch on that a little bit, maybe not so much in this episode, but in the in the upcoming episodes, that, hey, this this whole thing already happened. We already had the dragon. We already had the beast. We already had the, the false prophet. This is, you know, why are you getting so worked up about this stuff, man? Don't you know that the world is just going to keep getting better and better and better until Jesus comes back and goes, hey, good job, guys. You know, uh, I guess I'll take it from here. Don't didn't really need me, but hey, here I am. So why why not just go ahead and take like? <laughs> All right, that was a cynical shot. All right, at the amillennial view, I'm just gonna just I'm just gonna confess it. That was a cynical shot. So forgive me, forgive me. But that's you know that's the beauty of a podcast where I'm just sitting here with a microphone. And I'm not talking to any, you know, my dear brothers that I love, you know, with all my heart. Um, I like I have to be so much nicer in person, and I would never take those kind of shots in person. So, but here I am with a microphone, recording on my computer. There's nobody to keep me in check here, so I just kind of take shots willy nilly. However, back to my point. The vision John sees is from God. This is a divine revelation. And no, this didn't already happen. How, well, how do you know this didn't already happen? 
I know this didn't happen because the beast and the false prophet were never thrown into an open pit, into a lake of fire. Like, that didn't happen. I also know that because Jesus didn't arrive on the earth to take it over, right? Like, those things did not happen. And if we're dumb enough to symbolize everything, we're going to end up with a Bible that doesn't mean anything. Because if you're just going to go ahead and symbolize the return of Jesus, like, oh, he symbolically returned. Nobody saw it. And for all we know, we don't exactly know when it happened, but we do know it happened. Well, why do we know it happened? We know it happened because we don't want to think the book of Revelation is future. That, that's why we know it happened. It had to have happened because, my goodness, if the book of Revelation is telling us about our future, that's freaky. So... It had to have happened, right? Great logic. Wonderful logic. <laughs> Boy, why am I so cynical today? I am, Lord, help me. Help me. I am, I'm sorry, guys. Sorry, all my, all millennial brothers out there. I'm, I'm just being nasty today. Um, I know that the book of Revelation, the, the prophecies of the book of Revelation, haven't been fulfilled yet because I know that Jesus hasn't returned yet, right? Because the whole idea of the book of Revelation is telling us about the events that would lead up to the return of Jesus. And so if we say, oh yeah, all of these events already happened, then we are stuck with saying, and also Jesus already returned, which is a very impossible thing to say can't really say that. It's really hard to say that the devil's been bound up and he's all locked up. Yeah, also very, very difficult. Now, there's going to be some folks out there that say it, but you got to remember there's folks out there that say all sorts of things. And so just because somebody is saying it does not make it true, right? If it is in the word of God, if it is the truth of God, it is true. Our opinions about it, our perspectives about it, yeah, they're here or there. But the word of God doesn't move. It doesn't change. It stands. It abides forever. So if we know that Jesus has not yet returned on a white horse to slay his enemies, which clearly he has not, then it is a very safe assumption to say that the events that are prophesied in the book of Revelation are yet future. We know that the devil has not broken into our physical world and began to act directly through the beast yet, because if he had already done that, Jesus would have already returned to slam. So I'm I'm like I'm saying something so painfully obvious. To make the point of, like, hey guys, this is this is stuff that's coming. This is this is stuff that's in the future. And so, when the Bible prophesies about the events that will happen up, leading up to the return of Jesus, that means it's still ahead of us. So we need to take it seriously. What was I? I don't even know. I don't even know where I was going with all that. I guess I'm just basically here to tell you, like, 
the prophecies in the book of Revelation, this isn't John's idea. This isn't like a human attempt to symbolize Rome and like vilify a, you know, it's just like all of that is nonsense. This is, these are prophecies that God revealed to John. John was report. He is a messenger. He is a reporter. He is writing what he sees. God is revealing. John is recording and we are here reading it. Because we are actually, I believe, on the threshold, on the cusp of seeing these prophecies uh, fulfilled in our lifetime, in the coming years. I believe that. And I also believe that the fulfillments of these prophecies are of a magnitude that require us to give it our full attention, to be asking the Lord about it, to be seeking him in his word and be aligning with these truths so that when we see this world spinning out, going crazy, we are anchored in the word of God. We do not make the mistake of anchoring our hope in this fallen age. We do not fall prey to the deceptions of the evil one. We are not blindsided by the labor pains that will seize upon this unsuspecting world. Our eyes, we are children of the light. We're sober and we are walking with discernment and understanding of what the Bible says. That's who we are. Now there's going to be this whole other group that's not interested in what the Bible says at all. We need to be reaching out to them. We need to be preaching the gospel to them. We need to be loving them in word and deed, but they're just not going to care. So they're going to be walking in darkness. They're not going to see clearly, and they're going to be blindsided by these events clearly foretold in the Bible. There's going to be a lot of folks in the church who do not want to come to terms with what is written in the Bible. It is very disruptive to believe the devil is coming into our world. It is very disruptive. Like it's, it's really difficult to get excited about your retirement when you, when you know the devil is coming and he's got a campaign and he's trying to onboard the entire world. Like, like American dream, Bible prophecy, like those two things, they, they don't work together well. Like you have to be committed to the kingdom of God, to the vision of God, the purpose and will of God, or you're going to be gravely disappointed with what comes to pass in the days ahead. If your hope if you are anchored fully in Jesus Christ, if you are aligned with his word and his truth, nothing that the enemy can do will separate you, you from his love. There's, not, there's not, nothing that he can deceive you with. There's nothing that can take away your peace and your joy and all the fruit of the spirit that God's bringing to pass in your life. The devil cannot touch you. But if you make the mistake of thinking, oh man, wow, 
this Bible prophecy stuff is so intense. I, I just, I just don't like it. It makes me super uncomfortable and it doesn't fit with any of my plans. Therefore, I'm going to stick my head in the sand. Like sticking head in sand is, is not a solution. That's actually going to exacerbate your situation because this world's not going to be getting less intense. It's not getting less confusing. It's accelerating in the other direction. And so you might try to stick your head in the sand for an hour or a day or a week or a month or a year. But when you stick, because eventually you're going to get curious, eventually you're going to have to pull your head out of the sand and look around and go, what the jack is going on around here? And this is, there is an invitation from the Lord to understand and align yourself with his word when it comes to Bible prophecy. And that is what we need to be doing. We need to align ourselves with the word of God. So today, like I said, we're going to get into the second, uh, the, yeah, second part of the Revelation chapter 13. Now, I know probably in the last episode or two, because like I'm making this up as I go along. I don't, I haven't written the book yet. I'm working on, uh, I'm, I'm uh, what do I say? I am doing research, initial research on the book, right? I'm not actually writing the book yet, but I'm getting closer to having uh, the groundwork set which is, very, is a very important stat, step in, in writing. All that to say is that, I, you know, I think I said that this is a two-part story. Um, the dragon, right? I, I broke up Revelation 12 as one part of the story. Now I'm saying Revelation, you know, 13 is the second part. It might be better to say this is a three-part story at this point. You know, like I... I it, I, I don't have all of the parts totally settled yet. But I can tell you this. Part 1, Revelation 12, the invisible campaign. I'm, so, I'm solid on that one, yeah? We know what the dragon was doing behind the scenes. We know what the dragon is doing in the spirit. He wants to devour the Son of God. He wants to destroy Israel. Like, that. those were what he's doing. And then when he fails... In doing those things, he stomps off to go make war against the saints. That's part one. Part two, we talked about in the last episode. This is the dragon's visible campaign. In his visible campaign, the dragon picks up where he left off in Revelation chapter 12. The dragon is making war against the saints. There's actually two parts to this second part. <laughs> is that confusing enough for you? Remember, who is the dragon? The dragon is Apollyon. He is the destroyer, right? He wanted to destroy the Son of God. He wanted to destroy Israel. He fails. He wants to destroy now he's moving into the earth. He wants to destroy the saints and he wants to destroy the image of God in fallen humanity. Apollyon is the destroyer. It makes sense that what is he doing? 
He's destroying stuff. Well, what is he trying to destroy? Well, first he tried to destroy the Messiah, the child that was being born of the woman. We know that's the Son of God. That's Jesus. He wanted to destroy him. Failed. Got kicked out of heaven. Got angry. Went after the woman, who is Israel, to destroy her. First drives her out into the wilderness. And second tries to sweep her away with a flood. He fails again. His campaign of destruction fails again. He gets mad. He exits the stage. Why is he stomping off so fiercely? Because he's going off to make war with the saints. He wants to destroy the saints. But he is going to do this by physically interacting in our actual world. This is no longer Satan behind the scenes where you can't see him. Right? Our best glimpse at Satan historically is to look at the emperor Hadrian, who tried to destroy the Jews and disperse them into the nations, changed the name, the, the, the province of Judea, changed it to the enemy of the, the Jewish people, the, the Philistines, and renamed the province Palestine. That's Hadrian, demonic dude, inspired by Satan to destroy the Jews. Absolutely get a glimpse of, but it's not Satan himself. Satan is behind the curtain. He's infusing Hadrian. He's inspiring him. He's giving him vision. He's giving him energy. Same thing with Hitler. Hitler wasn't the devil himself, even though like you look at him and go like, my goodness, if there wasn't a devil in the flesh, who could it be if it's not Hitler, right? That, that guy was as evil as they come, almost. But it's Satan again behind the scene, infusing Hitler, giving him this demonic agenda, this final solution to wipe out the Jewish people once and for all. It's Satan behind the scenes. Revelation chapter 13, the curtain is, is, is pulled back. The beast arises. It is the same entity. The seven-headed dragon comes to earth as a seven-headed beast. So we know the dragon is coming physically into our world, going to be at interacting directly in our physical world. We also know that he's not coming as a man of peace. There is no indication in Revelation 13 or anywhere else in the book of Revelation, as far as I'm aware, that the seven-headed beast wants to broker any kind of peace deal at all. There's no, there's no peace. When, when you're looking at the seven-headed beast in Revelation, there's no, there's no peace dealing. There is war. The seven-headed dragon is a god of war. We saw, what is he doing? Why is he warring? He's warring against the saints to destroy the saints, number one. But also, number two, he is destroying the image of God in fallen humanity. 
How is the beast destroying the image of God? See, this is this is the big this is the big agenda. This is the big objective of the dragon. It is to expel God from his own creation. He wants God out. So, like we, we see these we see this growing agenda in the world of expelling the word of God from every sphere of society. We see the agenda to expel the truth about the uh, human condition, about human relationships, the truth about sexuality and gender. There is a there is a move to expel the truth, to expel the people of God. We haven't seen anything yet. The dragon has not yet appeared as the beast, and already fallen humanity is begging for it. They're already aligning with it. They hate the Bible, they hate the truth, and they, quite frankly, hate Christians. That is just reality. The beast has not even shown up for his own people yet, and they're already aligning with this agenda. So the last episode, we talked about the visible campaign of the dragon to make a war with the saints. Why does he want to make war with the saints? Well, he wants to drive. He wants to drive God out of his creation. And a really effective first step of doing that is physically making war against the saints. And it says that the beast is allowed to conquer them. So to a measure, the dragon, because it is given to him, he succeeds in the expelling of God through making war with the saints. Now, that's just step one of his objective. The other objective is to stamp out and destroy the image of God in fallen humanity. Even though fallen humans, even now, are aligning with the dragon's agenda to destroy God, to expel God from his creation, fallen humanity is already aligning with that agenda. That's not enough for the dragon. That's not enough for the beast. When the beast shows up and he comes to his people that are already aligned with him, that have already been doing his work in the earth, he's going to look at them and say, you sicken me because you bear the image of the creator who I hate and am sworn to destroy. So the dragon is going to destroy the image of God in fallen humanity. Now the question becomes, how does he do that? We, get, we got, a, we got a, a brief glimpse of that campaign, that objective in uh, the last episode, where it says in uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, all who dwell on earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life 
of the Lamb who was slain. The worship of the beast, the worship of the dragon is the pathway to the destruction of the image of God in fallen humanity. So that's part two, right? Okay, so part one, the invisible campaign of the dragon behind the scenes to devour, to destroy the Messiah, to de destroy Israel. The failure, the dragon stomps off to go make war with the saints. Revelation chapter 13, the beast appears. This is the extension of the dragon. The seven-headed dragon comes as the seven-headed beast to make war with the saints and also to destroy the image of God in fallen humanity. And he does that through worship. Why? Because we become like what we worship. Apollyon is totally committed to the destruction of God in every form. The war on the saints is not where it ends. That's step one. Step two is to change fallen humanity, to fundamentally reshape fallen humanity, to onboard them with his rebellion. Remember, this is the dragon that swept down a third of the stars from heaven. What were those stars? Those stars were angels. A third of the stars in heaven, angels, joined in the dragon's rebellion. He's on the earth to do the same thing. He's on board. He wants to onboard the nations with his rebellion. So how does he do that? He does it with a little help from his friend, the false prophet. And that brings us, my goodness, how long is this episode going to be? This is going to be a long episode. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to open up your word to us. Open up Revelation chapter 13 so that we can understand your word. Lord, enlighten our eyes and give us ears to hear you and your plan to take confidence that you are the Alpha and Omega. You are the beginning and the end. Our destiny is sure in you. And you will make sure that you will lose nothing. So we surrender to you. We surrender to your plan. We surrender to your word. We ask you that by your spirit, you would speak to us and show us treasures in your word. In the name of Jesus, we thank you for it. Okay, I read the first part of Revelation 13. Now I'm going to read the second part, picking up in verse 11. So if you got your Bible, go ahead, grab it, open it up. I'm in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all of the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. 
It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who understands calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Okay, there is a lot there. All right, I just read the second part of Revelation chapter 13. There is a lot of detail, and I realize again, just like in the last episode, when I just read these scriptures, these passages, we are accustomed to immediately go in and um, begin to interpret the details. We want to dig in and our mind fills immediately with all the details that we've filled our mind with um, for these, um, in these, these passages here. I am asking you to once again shelve all of the interpretive details that you've applied to this package, uh, passage. Just go ahead and set it aside and let's listen to the story. What's happening here? Now, this particular passage is a lot of detail, so it's, it's much easier to get bogged down into the details of it. But what is the overarching, overall, overarching reality that is taking place here? I want to try to get to the bottom of that, so I'm just asking you to... Do the best you can to pretend like you've never read this passage before. Look upon this passage with new eyes and just hear the story without all the baggage. Because I, I know from my past experience that this of the description of the false prophet. I don't think he's actually named as the false prophet in this passage, but later on, the second beast is clearly identified with the moniker, the false prophet. So this is the false prophet. We are very accustomed to thinking of the false prophet in terms of the Antichrist sidekick very accustomed to thinking of this as a religious leader, like immediately when you say the, the, the name false prophet, um, people's minds fill with the Pope. I'm asking you, I'm asking you set aside the Pope, set aside the religious leader, set aside the sidekick and just let's listen to the story that's being told. 
Now, the actual movement of the plot of the story almost kind of comes to a standstill. So in this passage, it's more describing uh, how things are happening rather than a movement forward of the plot. Because remember, part one of the story is the dragon is invisible campaign to destroy the Messiah, to destroy Israel. Part two, the visible campaign to make war with the saints. Part three is what we're reading now is the dragon's visible, physical campaign to expel or destroy the image of God in fallen humanity. And if we really want to get to the bottom of who this false prophet is, we will understand that is his primary role. It's actually to betray humanity. He is the great Judas of fallen humanity. This false prophet directs, leads, makes fallen humanity to worship the beast, hands fallen humanity into the hands of the dragon, into the power of the dragon, betrays fallen humanity from their creator, misleads them and directs them under the power of the deceiver, the accuser, the destroyer. The false prophet is the great betrayer of humanity. So if we really want to get down to what is happening, how the plot is moving forward here, we need to understand that this is Satan's campaign. This is the description of Satan's campaign, the dragon's visible campaign to onboard fallen humanity and to destroy the image of God, to expel God from his creation. So how is the dragon doing this? He's doing it in partnership, in cooperation with this false prophet. Who is the false prophet? Well, you guys probably know who I think the false prophet is, at least in the early days of the false prophet. But we're not going to actually touch on any of that today. So if you were hoping I was going to go get all crazy on Elon Musk, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm just going to stick with the Bible. I'm just going to stick with what is the story of the Bible and the how the dragon will cooperate, partner with the false prophet to onboard fallen humanity with the dragon's rebellion. Remember, this is the same dragon that swept a third of the angels from heaven, and now he's looking to sweep fallen humanity into his same rebellion to onboard the nations and to destroy the image of God. How is he going to use the how is he going to partner with the false prophet in this process? That's what we want to get into. That's what I'm that's that's where I'm going to spend most of my time uh, drilling into today. So the first question is is well, who is this guy? I I already told you his moniker, his name, his title 
in other passages that describe this, the second beast is the false prophet. So I'm going to say the second beast or the false prophet. Who is the false prophet? Well, the first thing we recognize about the false prophet, he arises from the earth. Remember, the beast came from the sea. Now the false prophet is arising from the earth. The false prophet has horns like a lamb. What does that mean? What is a lamb? Well, considering that this is the book of Revelation, and we know who the lamb of God, the lamb who was slain, the lamb who rules and reigns over all of heaven and earth, we know the true Lamb of God is the Savior of the world. We know the Lamb of God is the Messiah. It is basic math. It is a more than reasonable assumption that this false prophet with horns like a lamb, it's not the true Lamb. It is not the true Messiah. It is the false lamb. The false prophet is the false lamb, the false Messiah. That's what that means. So the false prophet is a false savior. He appears as a savior. People look to him. Oh, wow, this is the savior. Is he really the Savior? No, the real Savior is the Lamb that was slain. The real Savior is the Lord of the Lamb's book of life. The true Lamb, the Lamb of God, is Jesus Christ. We're not talking about Jesus Christ. We're talking about the false prophet who has horns like a lamb. False Lamb false Messiah, false Savior, false Christ. You do the math. You do the math who we're talking about here. So we know the false prophet is the false Messiah. We also know that the false Messiah, this false prophet, speaks like the dragon. He is a messenger of the dragon. He is the word of the dragon. He is, he embodies, he carries the word, the messenger. That's, you know, makes a lot of sense. If he's the false prophet, he would also be a false messenger. He would embody the word of the dragon. Speaks like a dragon. What else? We know the false prophet is a false messiah. We know the false prophet is the word of the dragon. What else? It also says that the false prophet exercises all of the authority of the first beast. All of the authority. The false prophet and the beast operate in equal authority. This isn't Tonto. This isn't Robin. There, there's, there's no time where Batman goes into Robin's cave and is like, you know, Robin, I'm perplexed. I don't know what to do. You know, 
holy macaroni, Robin. What do we do next? Like, Batman doesn't do that, right? Because why? Because Robin is his sidekick. Sidekicks don't operate in equal authority. So we're not talking about a sidekick. We're talking about co-equals. The beast and the false prophet are co-equal in authority. So we know the false prophet is a false messiah. We know he is the word of the dragon. We know the false prophet is co-equal with the beast. It says that the false prophet makes the inhabitants of the earth worship the beast. The false prophet is involved with getting the nations to worship the beast, to worship the dragon. He is the on-ramp. He is the one pointing humanity, fallen humanity, to the dragon, to the beast. He is the one, he is the on-ramp for fallen humanity to fall into the hands of the dragon. The false prophet, the false messiah, the word of the dragon, the co-equal with the beast is the on-ramp for fallen humanity to worship the beast, to worship the dragon. Remember, it is the authority that begins with the dragon that is infused into the beast that causes people to worship. Now, it is that very same authority that is shared co-equally with the false prophet. The false prophet is operating in co-equal authority with the beast. And it is that authority that causes the nations to worship. So if they're worshiping the dragon because of his authority, and they're worshiping the beast because the dragon gave the, the beast his, its authority, then it's completely illogical to assume that the false prophet who is operating in the same authority as the beast would also at some point be worshipped. Completely reasonable. Let me just go back. I want to touch on that point just a little bit because this is probably the one big hiccup where people are like, well, the false prophet can't be the Antichrist because he's causing the nations to worship the beast. My point is this. We're looking at a demonic trinity. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. These are one demonic reality that function together. It is the antithesis or opposite of the Holy Trinity, where you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Holy Trinity is worshipped. We worship the Father rightly. We worship the Son rightly. We worship the Holy Spirit rightly. Worship is involved with all three members. And remember, when Jesus was doing his ministry on earth, 
People would worship him from time to time, but that was not his primary thing. Like now he's worshiped, he's, he's ascended into heaven. He's worshiped 24 seven forever and ever, rightfully so. And I'll, I'll worship him forever and ever. But when he was on the earth, it wasn't like he was having worship services where people would come around and worship him and he was setting it up so that people would worship him. He could have done that. Jesus could have been like, hey guys, we're all going to have a big worship service, you know, this weekend. I'm going to set it up. I'll be in the middle. You guys worship me. He could have rightly done that. And there were times where his disciples and others would fall at his feet and rightly worship him. He deserved to be worshiped his entire time he was on earth, but he didn't make a point of it. He pointed other people to worship God. My point is the false prophet is doing the same thing here. He's pointing other people to worship the dragon, to worship the beast. But there will come a time in this demonic trinity reality that the authority that begins with the dragon that is shared with the beast is why the nations are worshiping the beast. The reason they are worshiping the dragon, it is his authority that is then shared co-equally with the false prophet. So this idea that the false prophet can't be the Antichrist because he's, he's, he's pointing other people to worship the dragon or worship the beast is not fully true. It isn't fully consistent. And, you know, and it, because honestly, this is probably... The, like the and I don't want to I don't want to just pass over you know potential problems with this perspective. I want to take them and hold them and and tackle them, grapple with them head on. So I would go back Revelation 13 verse 4. It says the whole earth, sorry, this is verse 3. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast Verse four, and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast. So the nations are marveling at the beast and they're worshiping the dragon because the dragon gave his authority to the beast. Worship here is tied specifically to authority because the dragon gave his authority to the beast, the inhabitants of earth, the fallen humanity worship the dragon and worship the beast. Why? Because of authority. The false prophet is exercises all of the same authority. It is shared co-equal authority. So if the nations are worshiping the dragon because of authority and the nations are worshiping the beast because of authority, it goes to follow that the nations will eventually, maybe not specifically in this passage, but eventually, because this is a demonic trinity, they will eventually worship the false prophet as well because he exercises all of the same authority that causes the nations to worship the dragon and the beast. 
So the nations will worship the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet because of authority, shared demonic trinity authority. The nations will worship the dragon, the nations will worship the beast, and the nations will worship the false prophet. Just like the antithesis, the opposite of the Holy Trinity. We worship the Father, we worship the Son, we worship the Holy Spirit. It's the antithesis. The false prophet is not a sidekick. He's a co-equal. Oh, wow. Did you feel me get a little uh, defensive there? I think it got a little defensive. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I need to like, I feel like it's more like an explanation. Like, like how could you think that the false prophet is the antichrist when the false prophet is causing the nations to worship the beast and worship the dragon? I would would turn around and say, well, how do you think Jesus is the son of God when he's telling people to worship the father? It is a trinity, right? It's a simple Simple explanation, but it does take a little bit of time to explain. Like this is this is you know this is not a deal breaker. This is not like the fatal flaw. Just just think about it for a second. Consider it and understand that there's there's more going on here. So the the false prophet back to the the who is this false prophet? He's a false messiah. He is the word of the dragon. He's the third member of the demonic trinity. He causes the, he is the on-ramp of fallen humanity to betray humanity into the hands of the dragon. He is the bridge, the demonic intercessor that stands before humanity and bridges the gap, betrays, like the great Judas of history, betrays fallen humanity into the hands of the destroyer. So that's who the false prophet is. So now we ask the question, how is the false prophet onboarding humanity into the hands of the dragon into the power of the dragon. What does the false prophet do to bridge the humanity, betray them into the hands of the dragon? How does he do it? Well, he does it through deception. He deceives, right? It says in verse 13, that the false prophet performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. So the false prophet is here to deceive. He is here to trick humanity, trick them to do what? Trick them to fall into the hands of the dragon. How is he tricking them? He's doing it through deceptive words and deceptive works, right? Remember, this is the word of the dragon. He is the embodiment, the messenger of the dragon. 
So he is deceiving through his words and he is deceiving through his works. He is working false signs and miracles. It says he's making fire come down from heaven in the sight of people. Why is he doing these signs? He's doing it to deceive people. Now that takes us back to the episode, whatever episode it was, eight, nine, whatever it was, on the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's just turn there briefly so that we understand what is going on. Because remember, this is the antithesis of the ministry of Jesus. The kingdom of God came with Jesus Christ. How do we know that? We know that through Jesus's words and through Jesus's works. And that was what Jesus challenged his skeptics with, right? He said, hey, look, man, if you're not going to receive the word of God that is proceeding from my mouth, which is absolutely staggering, if you're not going to listen to my words, then believe me for the works that I'm doing. This is a two-pronged approach from heaven, right? The kingdom, the gospel is a two-pronged approach. It is the word of God. It is the message of God. And secondarily, the power of God, the works. We do the works of God. Jesus pointed to his words and his works. The false prophet is deceiving humanity with his words, the word of the dragon. He speaks like a dragon, deceiving with his words, and he is deceiving with his works his words and his works. He's making fire come down from heaven, false signs and wonders. Second Thessalonians chapter two, just briefly, not going to spend a lot of time there. Just want to touch on it briefly. It says in uh, chapter two, second Thessalonians chapter two, verse eight, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And, verse 10, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Paul tells us of the man of lawlessness who will deceive with his words and his works. His words deceive his works, false signs and wonders by the activity of Satan are just as deceptive as his words, but they're impressive. Best magic tricks around, best parlor tricks technology can bring to pass. No question, when the false prophet brings fire down from heaven, it's gonna be cool. You can bet on that. It is going to be cool and it's going to be technology and it's going to be a trick and it's going to be a false sign, but people are going to look at it like, oh, wow, this is validation that this is the Messiah, the Savior, but he is simply deceiving fallen humanity in order to deliver them into the hands of the dragon. That is what's happening Fallen humanity is being onboarded, right? Like 
I'm just thinking that of this like on the fly. So forgive me if the analogy like breaks down, the metaphor just doesn't hold any water. But okay, imagine okay, uh, sci-fi movie where the uh, aliens from another planet they come and the, the the UFOs are all up in the sky, right? And they want to get all of fallen humanity. Well, first of all, they have to fight against anybody who just wants to fight them, right? So they have to come in. They have to fight anybody who's going to fight. This is that's the war of the saints. We're, we got we got to get rid of these people who don't want us. That's step one. And then once the once the 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 Earth is subdued, so the the UFOs subdue all resistance. Then step two is, hey, we need to get all of all of these humans on board these flying saucers so that we can reprogram them and make them into our own alien image, right? Well, what's the best way to do that? Is it, is it, it's kind of scary if we just land our UFOs in their front yard and take our laser guns and force them into the UFOs. Like, that's not what's actually going to happen. Like... Fallen humanity must choose this. They must want this. They're going to cry out for this. They're going to be beckoning the aliens to come and take them and change them, right? This isn't a forced thing. This is fallen humanity getting what it, get it, getting what it, what it wants. So in this movie scenario, all right, flying saucers are up in the air. And they're going, boy, we need to get these humans on board our flying saucers so that we can change their image and make them like us. And they think, well, what's the best way to do that? What we should do is designate the lead corporate head betrayer, right? Like if we can get like the, the human from their own race, the ultimate one that they all look up to, that they all want to be just like him. And he is telling them for them to get on board the UFOs. That will be perfect. In fact, we'll give him some of our technology to make him look extra impressive and we'll give him some of our messaging so that they'll totally buy this whole thing that, yeah, they get in the UFO. Yeah, we're going to change them, but it's for the better. It's for the future progress and evolution of the, 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 the you know, homo sapien species of humanity. This is the next step in evolution. We'll get the main guy to talk them into loading into our UFOs so we can do this together. That's kind of the scenario here. And I don't know if like a UFO movie helps to understand the scenario, but that's what's happening. The dragon, this alien entity from heaven is operating in the earth. He wants to onboard fallen humanity, you know, after he removes all resistance, after he subdues the earth, the God of war comes in, subdues all resistance, takes over step two, onboard the fallen ones that are joining my rebellion. How do I do that? Oh, I'm going to do that in partnership with the corporate head of fallen humanity, the great Judas, the great betrayer, the one who will take his race and hand them into the hands of the destroyer. And how does this great Judas 
this great betrayer of humanity do it? He does it because he's carrying the message of the dragon. He's deceiving people with the message and he's deceiving them with his works. He's calling fire down from heaven. Who knows what else he's doing? He's doing false signs and lying wonders to get fallen humanity on board. So we're clear here. The false prophet, false messiah, word of the dragon, deceiving the nations to onboard them with the dragon's plan, right? Okay, so the I'm just going to keep writing this UFO uh, metaphor, and eventually it's going to break down, and I'm going to throw it under the bus. But until that happens, I'm going to write it a little bit longer. <sighs> the aliens have come. They're, they're in their UFOs. They're hovering over, and they're like, okay, this is how we're going to get fallen humanity onto our ship so that we can change them and make them into our own image. How do we do that? Well, we're going to cooperate and partner with their leader, their corporate head. This great Judas, the false prophet, is going to bring the message of the aliens, the deceptions of the aliens, and he's going to operate in the technological superior technological ability of the aliens and everybody, all of the fallen who are already under the power of these UFOs are going to say, yes, we want to get on board and we want to be changed. Okay, so, so now everybody's on board, right? So we got everybody on the UFOs. Now what happens, right? So this is, this is the progression of how humanity will be, fallen humanity will be destroyed, how the image of God will be destroyed so the question becomes now, how does the false prophet work with the dragon to destroy the image of God in fallen humanity? First step, what he does is he inspires the nations to make an image for the beast, right? It says in verse 14, by the signs it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, and he telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So this false prophet, right, he's leading humanity. He's the point where everybody's like, that. Ah, we want to be like him. We're on board with whatever he says. We adore him. He is, he is the next step in human progression. He's everything humanity needs to be, right? He's the great savior, the, 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 the false messiah. So the great Judas, the great leader, the fallen messiah, corporate head of fallen humanity, he comes up with this idea which again is demonic, which again is what the dragon wants. He inspires the nations to make an image, a global effort to create an image for the beast. And it is allowed to give breath to this image. So they make an image and they give breath to it. What does it mean in the Bible 
when something is given breath? Well, when God breathed into mud, he made Adam and Eve. So the false prophet is going to give breath into this image that the nations have made. What does that mean? That means biological life will be born. Artificial, man-made, synthetic, biological life. An embodiment. An image for the beast. And it is this embodiment that the beast then operates directly through. So to understand this, you need to like watch a couple of these like movies about artificial intelligence just to understand the concept, right? Because conceptually what's happening here is like what happens in the movie Her or in the movie Transcendence where there is a disembodied AI. Actually, it happens in the age of Ultron as well. Yeah, actually, that's probably the maybe the best example of it. A disembodied artificial intelligence that's operating wants to be embodied, wants to be embodied with flesh, wants to have biological life, right? That This is the whole idea in the age of Ultron when T- Tony Stark uses the Ultron technology and plug tries to plug it into this synthetic biology. And it's, it's instead of it being Ultron, it's, it's the vision character that comes in and is embodied, right? This is a biological embodiment that the beast then operates through. It is this biological embodiment that is thrown into the lake of fire And that's why in Revelation 19, the beast, when he is thrown into the lake of fire, it is this biological embodiment that he is in, that he is part of, that it, I should say, is part of. A biological, so what is happening here, and the bigger concept here is this is the antithesis or the opposite of the incarnation of God, right? When God was incarnated, Jesus Christ came from the highest. He humbled himself. He wrapped himself in flesh, took the form of a servant, was born as a baby in Bethlehem. God wrapped himself in flesh. He became human. See, the devil can't do that. The devil can't make himself a man. That's that, that is like if you if you if you thought the devil could resurrect the antichrist you're wrong you have a low view of resurrection if you think satan can incarnate himself into a man you are wrong and you have a low view of incarnation only god can resurrect Only God can incarnate himself. The devil cannot do it. So the false prophet comes along and does the incarnation for the devil. The devil does not have a human body. The dragon in the form of a beast, this beast, and we'll get into the details of the the components of the beast, 
But this is the dragon, the seven-headed dragon operating as the seven-headed beast, now embodied or made incarnate, not by God, not because Satan becomes a man, nope, because the false prophet leads the nations, the fallen nations, into the greatest achievement of, of fallen mankind. The greatest achievement in history. This will be applauded as his crowning achievement. Biological embodiment of the beast. So that's the first way that the false prophet is going to onboard and change the destroy the image of man is by creating an image of the beast that people will worship the beast and become like the beast. So it is the avenue of worship of an image that the false prophet creates. Because remember, again, fallen humanity in the UFO movie are on the flying saucers now. They have all been onboarded. Now begins the process of changing them. How do we change fallen humanity to expel the image of God out of them? We do it by creating an image of the beast that fallen humanity will worship. Step one. Step two, verse 16. The false prophet marks fallen humanity. He marks fallen humanity. What does that mean? Well, I'll read it. Verse 16, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This is the ultimate in the fundamental changing of humanity, fallen humanity. The marking of the false prophet. So step one, create an image of the beast, an embodiment, a biological embodiment that people will worship and through their worship become like, but secondly, fundamentally and permanently mark them. And mark them with what? Mark them with the name of the beast. What is the name of the beast? The name of the beast is the nature of the beast. The false prophet is coming to mark fallen humanity with the nature of the beast. There will no, it will, the nature of the beast will forever displace the image of God. When fallen humanity is marked with the name slash nature of the beast, it, fallen humanity who is marked by this nature, marked by this name, will be fundamentally altered. The image of God will be obliterated. And what 
is the name of the beast? What is the nature of the beast? It says, the name, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. What is the mark? The mark is the name of the beast or the number of its name. The number of the name. When the false prophet marks fallen humanity, he marks it with the name and nature of the beast. He marks fallen humanity with a number. A number. The nature or name of the beast is numerical. It's digits, ones, zeros. The name, nature of the beast is digital. It's digital in nature. The beast is digital in nature. And when the false prophet comes and marks fallen humanity with the digital nature of the beast, fallen humanity loses forever, permanently the image of God. That is how fallen humanity is onboarded. That is how the dragon once and for all destroys the image of God through the digitizing of humanity. I don't even know where to go from there. I feel, yeah, probably already gone way too long here. Um, just brief summary. Let's just summarize real quick the three parts of the story, right? Part one, the dragon, the invisible campaign. He, the dragon is behind the scenes. John sees him up, up in heaven, the dragon waiting to devour the son of God, the child that would be born of the woman. The son escapes, goes to heaven. The dragon is expelled out of heaven. There's no longer any place for him in heaven. He pursues the woman, Israel. Israel escapes his pursuit, is given refuge in a wilderness. The dragon comes again to wipe Israel off of the planet. The earth comes to Israel's aid. The dragon is furious, leaves, goes to make war with the saints. So part one, the dragon trying to destroy the Son of God, trying to destroy Israel. We've seen those realities play out in history. They're massive. They're real. The dragon fails to destroy the Son of God. The dragon fails to destroy Israel. He's furious. He marches off to make war with the saints. Part two, the seven-headed dragon becomes 
the seven-headed beast. His campaign that he started in heaven continues. Now it's happening in the physical earth. The advent of the dragon, the coming of the evil one before the great and terrible day of the Lord. The dragon is unleashed in the earth. He comes in the form of the seven-headed dragon. What is he doing? Step one, making war with the saints. He is subduing all resistance. Part three, the visible campaign of the dragon in partnership, in co-equal authority with the false prophet, the head of fallen humanity, marking humanity with the name of the beast, the nature of the beast, creating an image for the beast, an embodiment, a biological embodiment for the beast, and marking all with the nature, the name, the number, the digitization of humanity, and thereby wiping out, expelling the image of God from fallen humanity. The devil's campaign, the destroyer, Apollyon, the one who destroys, wanted to destroy the Son of God, failed, wanted to destroy Israel, failed, came to earth to expel the saints, has a measure of success. It is given to him to make war, allowed to him, allowed him to conquer the saints. He expels the saints. Step two, he onboards humanity. How does he do it? He does it in full cooperation, in co-equal partnership with the false prophet who inspires the nations to incarnate Satan, to give him a body. And he does it by digitizing, marking humanity, fallen humanity, with the name, the number of the beast. I'm going to leave it there for now. I'll probably circle back on a few of these things. I'm sure there's lots of questions. Please, um, I want to hear your thoughts on where I'm going with this, what I'm saying. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me what I'm missing. Please just tweet me, DM me. I'm here. Um, if you're enjoying what I'm doing, I'm asking you to, to pass it along. Hit subscribe, leave a review. I'm just asking, I'm just asking for a little bit of support here. I feel like I'm and wandering off the, the reservation a little bit. And every bit of encouragement helps me. Every bit of connection, knowing that you're listening, that you're blessed by this, knowing that you're pushing it on to others to be blessed by it is a huge blessing to me. So Father, we thank you. Thank you for this episode. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. God, And we just pray for the seed of your word to land and grow fruit for your kingdom, even a hundredfold, Father. In the name of Jesus. So saints, remember, be watching signs of the times, be praying, be cooperating with the redemptive purpose of God and be declaring the gospel until Jesus returns. We'll see you next time.
That concludes this episode of Babylon Singularity. I want to thank you for tuning in. If you're looking to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter as well as my website, BabylonSingularity.com. I've also authored a book titled Babylon, available on Amazon. I look forward to hearing any thoughts or feedback, comments that you may have to help me make this show better. I do hope it's a blessing to you, and I hope that you'll tune in next time to Babylon Singularity.